and even the teachers. But I think the leaders should start so they can feel that empathy and that they can work towards, you know, achieving a common goal for everyone, which is we're all different and it's okay to be different. Hello, everyone, and welcome to part two of Racial Inequality in Educational Leadership. If you haven't done so already, be sure to check out part one of this episode. And once again, we're joined with Kevin Simpson, Octavia Turian, and Joy Buckner. Welcome back, you guys. Thank you for being on Cast Teacherly, and I'm so excited to unpick with you guys how you think racial inequality in educational leadership is impacting our students. So to start off this episode, I thought it would be great for the three of you to tell our listeners a little bit about your experience as a student and what were some factors that influenced your experience as students. So I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Colorado is not an extremely diverse state, mostly Caucasian. But I happened to grow up in a neighborhood that was, I felt, pretty diverse. But there was always a handful of Black kids. And they were usually my cousins. Or I, actually, I can name every single Black student in my, in my elementary school. And it was difficult because like, they always separated us. So there was always just maybe one other student of color, color in your class. And so you just kind of felt like a little bit ostracized. But at the time, I didn't quite understand what that feeling was. Like I knew that I was uncomfortable, but didn't quite get what it was. And so one thing that my father grew up in Indianapolis, which is like the complete opposite of Colorado. And my mom grew up in a small town in Indiana called Lawrenceburg, right outside of Cincinnati. And so it was very important uh, to my parents that if we didn't see other students that looked like us in school that outside of school we were going to. So I kind of had to learn how to like live in two different worlds. I had all white friends in school and all black friends out of school, but my parents were very intentional about making sure that my sister and my brother and I like knew who we were. We had an identity and we stood up for ourselves. And, but I think that that really formed who I am or who I was as a student. And it made me later on in my schooling seek out others that were like me or might have had similar circumstances growing up. So I went to a historically black college. I went to Hampton University. And I really think that I sought that out because I wanted to to have other students who looked like me and understood me and that I didn't have to explain to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And mine's similar to Joy, actually. I um just reflecting on the question. So my kindergarten through third grade, so the early year experiences were at a predominantly black uh, school, elementary. And then come fourth grade, there's an announcement. We're moving. Mm-hmm. And it was a shocker. I'm not gonna play. My brother and I put up a fuss. You know, we were like, we are not moving. Where are we moving? We were adamant um, because we knew a little bit about the neighborhood and where the location. And so we moved from all black to all white. Oh, wow. Yeah, totally different experience. I was the only, I was one of a few, there were a few black students in the upper elementary part. So that was fourth grade of school, you know. Said on the last episode, first sort of racial incident happened, you know, being called the N word. And so, all what happened with that, the district, the way it was formatted, you had several elementary schools that were spread out, but then during middle school and high school, everyone sort of merged together. And so, once the merge happened, that's where you saw sort of everyone, you know, from all these different backgrounds um, coming together. So, um, still majority white, but then it just varied because you had folks from everywhere blending together. So my middle school, high school, I definitely felt like that was more just representative of everybody. 
So in terms of like social circles that I operated in, it was some of everybody. And then I think that heavily sort of influenced, you know, a lot of decisions in terms of where I would matriculate through for university. I went to Michigan State University. And then in terms of actually after that, in terms of living, I've always had this scope and this this thinking of I want to be around different people, learn from different types of people. And growing up, we, you know, mom definitely did a great job of literature, making sure it was representative. TV shows, again, making sure it was representative. Yeah. And just, I think a big piece that played a role was definitely church. So in terms of the identity piece, the who, are, who am I, I went to an African-American AME church growing up, participating in youth events, summer events, camps away. Again, I feel like those different all of those different experiences exposed me to different types of people from different walks of lives and really sort of rooted me and helped me shape sort of who I am and where I wanted to go in the world, literally. So sort of fast forward to 2005 when I first left to live and work overseas. I think for the most part, people weren't shocked. You know, some people were shocked, but most weren't just because, again, I was always curious in terms of about people and cultures and um, about about places. Yeah. What state did you grow up in? Ah, yeah. So grew up in Michigan. So I forgot my, you know, I'm a kid from Flint, Michigan, you know, born yeah. and raised in Michigan. So, and again, went there for school all through university and then left and went to Washington, D.C., which is a big change in, uh, when I left after I graduated from college. Yeah. Me too. I didn't know we had that in common. What? Because I saw him. Yeah. I know you said Hampton. So I'm like, you were in a DM. You were in a DMV, <laughs> the, the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. Absolutely. Yeah. So, what about you, Octavia? <laughs> so, for me, I grew up in a rural area in Virginia, and we were pretty fifty-fifty, like black and white. So, I had white friends. I had black friends, and I personally don't remember much. I didn't have anything that was really negative in my. Coming up in my elementary days, other than me, I was the negative person. I was bad. But <laughs> other than that, I don't think I had any negative. My elementary teacher was black. My my kindergarten teacher was black. And then I had black teachers throughout um, my high school. So I didn't have really that problem. However, I was flipped when I went to college and I actually went to a predominantly white university. And so when I went there is where I actually started to see my problems, such as, you know, my talk, my language, how I pronounce my words. Like one of my professors yeah. tried to correct me in the way I spoke. And she just gave me, oh, may she rest in peace. She gave me a hard time. And it was really, there was not many Black students on campus. And so I met you know, really close friends. I met one friend, we became really close and we were able to support each other. But we both realized as black students on a white campus, we really had to go through a struggle to graduate. It was not easy and it was definitely a struggle. Oh, wow. Well, well, thank you for sharing. And I think, I think similar to you, Octavia, when I, when I was growing up and when I was in school, I grew up in a very multicultural school. All of my teachers were of different backgrounds. But for me, the educational leadership within my school structure was predominantly white and predominantly white men. And so when I was 17, 16 years old, and I wanted to study education, and I wanted to get into this industry, I was terrified because I was so terrified that as an Indian girl with an Indian passport, how would I do anything in this industry? Because I could see clearly my teachers from India, my teachers from Pakistan, or, or anywhere really were not given the same respect or the same promotions as 
their white counterparts. And that scared me. And for me, that really heavily affected my experience as a student and kind of the way I saw the world. And it was scary, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So following on from that, like, what are some ways you guys have seen or you guys have felt that racial inequality in leadership can affect the student? I have a twin sister who still lives in Colorado. And the school where my nieces go is, a, for Colorado, a pretty diverse school. And initially, they had a Black female principal there who was doing great. And then they decided to move her out. And they brought a new principal in. And all of a sudden, there was a increase of incidents where the Black and Latino students were being disciplined at higher rates, were being suspended at higher rates, were having just disciplinary actions taken against them. And so the parents really had to speak up. And it was actually the the Caucasian parents that spoke up about it first, about how this hadn't been their culture in the past. And so they wanted to see what the issue was. And there was an investigation that went into it. And they realized that it really was the leadership that had some preconceived notions about certain students of certain races. And she was... I guess, using her bias against them to punish them. And I, I looked more into this as, as I saw this un, unfolding. And it is such a problem across our country. And I'm sure worldwide as well. That's something that I really see with students of color being disciplined and not treating as fairly from leadership. I'm not sure if you and if Octavian and, and Kevin have, have noticed the same. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, goes back to that, you know, how do we, like we said before, how do you get balance, you know, across, especially in the leadership? Because, you know, like your message, even Ashna, like we, we notice stuff, we notice yeah. comments, we notice treatment, you know, Absolutely. and students pick up on that, you know, yeah. and, you know, comments of, you know, students saying, well, I couldn't do this because I'm not this. You know, that's that speaks volumes, you know, especially as leaders. And, you know, my big thing is like, are we really always listening, you know, listening to what students are saying? And, you know, when students aren't being listened to, aren't, you know, their voices, you know, aren't front and center. Again, it speaks volumes. It says a lot. And so, you know, my big thing obviously is, you know, how do we ensure that leaders, especially in schools and education, are for all all students you know how are they really for all students you know because what you just said joy especially in terms of when you look at data and again that's one of the big pieces and one of the uh the things that i was told very early on is you know root root as much as you possibly can in terms of what you're saying in data and when you look at data of those types of incidents in terms of who is being you know pushed out of school or expelled or pushed out of class it speaks volumes you know and on that side of of leadership, you know, when you don't have somebody who might not understand, someone who's not listening, you know, not willing to listen, it's definitely sending a message, you know, to youth and and those, and I'm big on, I remember, you know, I think it's Marion L. uh, Wright Elderman that said, you can't be what you can't see. Yes. And that's actually, was, you know, sort of questioning, like, I want to do this, but then I'm noticing this, you know, and barriers, I think a lot of times can happen uh, based on the actions and based on the the words that come out of the mouths of, of leaders. And so I know I grew up with that whole words are powerful, you know, being mindful of what we're saying, but again, what we're doing, you know, because youth are watching you know, and they're listening. 
Absolutely. And what about you, Octavia? I think they Joy and Kevin kind of said exactly kind of what I was going to say, but I would like to give more of a strategy as well as more of that being open. What I've realized for me, even being in a coming from a rural area as an individual and moving international, um, a lot of people just don't have the knowledge or understanding and seeing, you know, looking back what's going on in the U.S. now, it's like the whole country itself to me is closed-minded. So let alone like when you're teaching. And so when you're talking about leadership, I personally feel like the leaders should, I think principles, here's just a little thing that I've always thought of. I think principles should take a trip abroad. I think part of their journey or a leadership, <laughs> not necessarily a principal, but leaders, I think they should take part of their, maybe their program when they're in their um, going to university for admin, but they should take a trip abroad just so they Absolutely. can actually be part and see the diversity of the yeah. world and or maybe another state or another school system that maybe it's, you know, in an urban system. So I just think that, you know, you say acts about inequality and leadership, but sometimes the leaders don't even know. They don't even have the knowledge. They live in a bubble. And so I think we need to expose them outside the bubble in order for them to be able to expose the students to so much more and, and even the teachers. But I think the leaders should start so they can feel that empathy and that they can work towards, you know, achieving a common goal for everyone, which is we're all different and it's okay to be different. I agree. Yes. Absolutely. I agree with you. I definitely yeah. think all leaders should travel or even necessarily like all teachers. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, that's the crazy thing I thought of. I was like, you know, they need to get out. You know, <laughs> they need to see the world because then True. they can take what they learned back into the classroom. And because teaching abroad has opened my eyes to so much. And so I definitely feel like as an educator in Virginia, you know, in a rural area and in the, the urban school systems, I definitely want to, I think that they all should just have that exposure so then they can come back and let them know that there's so much more in the world and they will have a change of view of society. Yeah. So true. And it, and it kind of leads into my next question. And, and before I do lead into my next question, I kind of want to tell you guys a little bit about something my friend experienced in a school. And this is what Joy was referring to earlier. But my question to you guys is kind of around what other ways we can encourage teachers to have these conversations with students about being mindful of the world and that, you know, there are other cultures out there. And so what my friend's school did was that they gave my friend, a colorblind award because she had a very multicultural group of friends. So what are your guys' thoughts? Do you think this is effective? Tell me what you think. Wait, I need clarification. You said a colorblind <laughs> I do too. Like, you don't see me award? Okay. Well, exactly. Oh, okay. So she, she got it because, because she was colorblind. Like, she wasn't... I don't know. I guess she wasn't looking at colors when she was selecting her friend circle or when she was creating friendships. I, I wish I could try and make more sense of this award, but I have very minimal information. And that's what I was told. Mm. And I had a very similar reaction. Well, how does she feel about this? Yeah. Well, this was, this was actually years ago when we were quite young. Um, that's also why I don't remember quite a lot about it. But I probably was around 11 or 12, so a good 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah, I think the big issue with colorblind is some people try to operate in that I don't see color. I just see children. I just see people world. 
but I'm sorry. You, you know, when you look at me, you're going to see who I am. You're going to see my identity. You're going to see my humanity. You're going to see my dignity, my experience, you know, you know, my challenges. I want you to see me and I want to see people. And that whole notion of, you know, being blind to color in this world, it just, it, it just, just doesn't, I, they need to get rid of that award. Like, yeah, quick, so fast, teachers just shouldn't do that. Yeah, that <laughs> no, that's no, I want you to see, I want you to see me. I want you to notice my color, but I want it not to matter. I, I think I was telling Ashley the other day, I was like, it's just not realistic. And as teachers, we need to be realistic. Like I used to, I told a friend of mine, he was, she was like, I just don't see color joy. And I said, that makes no sense. Like, let's say you are walking down the street, you see a, you see a crime in progress and you, you witness this crime and the police came and say, can you, can you identify the perpetrator for us? And you're, and you, but you're not going to say, oh yeah. So that person was wearing like a red t-shirt and jeans was like a hundred, like 180 pounds, six feet brown hair, but I don't know what color they were because I don't notice those things. I don't see color. Like it's not realistic. It doesn't make any sense. True. And, so, and they had a red shirt on. So let's be And honest. they had a red we, shirt on. It's like you speak color. Exactly. <laughs> like it's not, it doesn't make sense to me. And the mere fact that forever people have been telling their students, well, we don't don't see color. One is confusing. And mm. two, it's just it doesn't make any sense. You should see it. You should embrace it. You should try to learn more about it. And it shouldn't make a difference if they're, and, and I also don't like that. Like, I don't care if you're red, black, purple, or yellow, or green. Like, we don't come in those colors. So just like, acknowledge who we are and see it and make sure that it's okay with you. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that, Joy. What do you think, Octavia? I think your reaction was a bit stunted. Are you still processing it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that yes. So that's that was quite interesting. Um, my personality is a little bit different, so I probably would have gotten suspended from school. So I'm just <laughs> going to skip that. My comment. I said enough. <laughs> I wouldn't. It wouldn't have been pretty for me. Like it was not because even if they were saying it like that, you know, there are people who are colorblind, and so like, would you say how does a person who's colorblind feel? Like, I don't know. So I will not comment on that. No worries. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, guys, that is all the time we have for today's episode. Is there any last remarks you guys would want to say to teachers who are out there maybe struggling to have a conversation with a student or are looking for other ways to incorporate sympathy and empathy within their students' learning? So I definitely feel like teachers should. I did this in my classroom. When I did my morning opening, I used to have my students talk about their experiences and I allowed them to talk about what happened um, at home, whether it, you know, the weekend. And I allowed my students to talk about it in an open discussion with no judgment. And so I feel like teachers should be able to have maybe you know, whatever time you have, or if it's once a week or every day, whatever they feel is, you know, reasonable for their classroom to have those conversations with their students. But sometimes it's hard for us because I've been there. Allow the students to drive the conversation and then allow, you know, maybe start one question, but allow the students to actually have an open dialogue about, you know, racial inequality or how they're feeling or, you know, what they see about the world. And I think that will at least build something within them that they won't forget. Absolutely. That's really valuable. Thank you. What about you, Joy and Kevin? I think for me, like teachers have to do the work. And, and saying that you have to push yourself to to be a little bit uncomfortable, to interact with someone that you might not necessarily would have before. 
Like there's been so many times when like you, you, you get in your comfort zone. And so I think with teachers, like if you don't know a lot about the black community or Hispanic community or Indian community, and you're a white woman or white man or what have you, just meet someone, have dialogue, have conversations, put yourself to know, study yeah. and make yourself aware. Like all too often, like we just get stuck in our own little box. And if you just take a little time to push your boundaries and open yourself up, I think it's the little steps that that equal big ones. And we start just making ourselves aware, educating ourselves. It's a good start. Absolutely. Definitely. And I agree with Ativa and Joy. And, you know, I think so this week, um, ALAC, we hosted a webinar on the power of tough conversations. And everyone was asked to read uh, Dina Simmons' ASCD article on how to be an anti-racist educator. And one wow. of the things she says in the article is to engage in vigilant self-awareness. And we're hosting these, you know, these conversations, webinars. So our next one's on the yeah. 8th of July. We invite the entire international education community to come out and engage. But for us, it is. It's like Joy said, it's starting with yourself, doing the work yourself, looking to see where you are at, looking to see, look at your circle. What are you reading? You know, look at your family. If you're, you know, a lot of these people, it's like there's stuff that's in households that needs to be addressed. Um, And then for educators, obviously, look at your curriculum, you know, whose stories are told, whose stories are not being told. Look at your literature, look at your, you know, your lovely library. You know, what does it look like? You know, who does it represent? Does it represent the the students you have? One of the things Octavia and I did, too, and I'm sure some of those spaces is we started hosting these these talks. We started in the U.S., we had one in UAE, and then a scholar from North Carolina was like, hey, I want to host a couple more. But we turned them into what we're calling now youth talks where they just have a place in space, they pick the topic and they talk. And adults are invited, but adults are observers. We can ask questions in the chat and come on at the very end to reflect, but it is for, it's a space that's designated for them. And it's just, I mean, turned into something that is just amazing. Because again, they lead it, they lead those discussions and those talks and those topics. Um, And then again, there's so many resources that are out here. You know, I always tell people, you know, check out Teaching Tolerance. They have great resources, stories, social justice standards. And then one thing, one thing I did uh, with our scholars here in Dallas, because again, my big thing is exposure, exposure, exposure beyond sort of where we're at. And then a combination of locally, nationally, and uh, internationally was virtual guest speakers. We had different people from different walks of life, from anyone from like Singapore to Nigeria, come and talk and share their story and their work with our scholars. And they had a chance to interact with them. And those are nine and 10 year olds, you know, so it really, it, it starts with us, you know doing the work yeah absolutely thank you guys so much for sharing that was some really valuable information and your personal insights i'm sure they'll really help people and all of our listeners to really understand the situation more so thank you thank you so much for being a part of cast teacherly and having these conversations with us thank you it was a pleasure to have you guys so thank you so much and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in take care everyone Mm -hmm.